This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Amicus is sponsored by HBO and the new documentary series, The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. And by The Great Courses, engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Privacy, Property, and Free Speech, Law, and the Constitution in the 21st Century. Get 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. Hi, and welcome to Amicus, Slate Supreme Court Podcast. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate Supreme Court Correspondent, and we've been on a little hiatus for the past few weeks due to an injury, but we're back, we're better than ever, and this week we want to preview what may turn out to be one of the sleeper cases of the term, a case scheduled for oral argument this Wednesday. King versus Burwell is a challenge to the Affordable Care Act that could, at least in the view of some court watchers, cut out the heart of Obamacare and leave millions of newly insured, low- and middle-income Americans uninsured. But unlike the last big challenge to the ACA in 2012, in which the court saved the president's signature legislation by one vote, the King case has just not captured the public imagination. And that's probably because it's just so technical. In fact, some people say the whole case turns on the definition of just four or five or seven words in this 900-page statute, and it raises incredibly arcane questions about how judges read the words in a bill. So we thought we would devote the entire show this week to trying to understand what this case is about and why it even matters. The issue in King, in its simplest terms, is this. Whether those 34 states 
that declined to create their own state exchanges and whose citizens therefore signed up in the federal exchange are going to be unable to get tax subsidies that are a central component of the ACA and which make their health care affordable to them. Now, there's some language in the bill that suggests that only the state-created exchanges, those are exchanges that the states themselves made, will be eligible for those subsidies, and this will be scrutinized microscopically by the justices come Wednesday. The results could be monumental, but we'll get to that. Our first guest today is Jonathan Adler, who teaches law at Case Western Reserve University. He was one of the main architects of the lawsuit in King versus Burwell, and he blogs uh, for the Volokh Conspiracy, and he's really worth following there. So welcome to Amicus, Jonathan Adler. Thank you. Good to be here. Now, one of the things I want to ask you about this case that is coming up this week is why it hasn't received the kind of public attention that the last Obamacare challenge in 2012 received. Uh, It just doesn't seem to be outside of the world of, you know, court watchers and legal observers and maybe the health policy wonks getting the kind of public attention that the last challenge got. Well, I think there are two reasons for that. I think one is that the issues involved in this case are more technical uh, and they deal with the implementation of the law. Whereas the, the NFIB case was really a frontal assault to the law as a whole and dealt with some broad constitutional issues that were easier to communicate, easier to soundbite. I also think that um, this case, uh, because it deals with the implementation of the statute, there was an assumption early on that it was like a lot of cases that were out there, and a few, I guess, that still are, that were kind of last gasps by folks that don't like the statute. Uh, You know, there have been a whole bunch of cases that embody very, very aggressive legal claims that really don't have much purchase in in the courts. Whereas an argument about whether or not an agency is properly following the statutory provisions that it's supposed to administer is something that um, courts tend to take very seriously, even if it doesn't have the, the sizzle of, you know, Obamacare is unconstitutional or something like that. Well, so make this sizzle for me, Jonathan. You are one of the people who who really thought this out originally. And as you say, this is not an elaborate constitutional claim like we heard last time. This is, in some sense, five little words. Can you help listeners who just can't get a toehold into this case understand what your central claim is? Sure. So uh, the basic question in the case is whether or not the IRS has the legal authority to authorize tax credits in exchanges that are established by the federal government as opposed to exchanges that are established by the state. And the reason this is an issue is because the way the statute is structured, it instructs states to create exchanges and then provides that the federal government will create exchanges if the states fail to do so. In a separate provision of the law where the law authorizes tax credits to assist some consumers in the individual market purchase health insurance, it provides for tax credits for qualifying purchases in an exchange established by the state, and then it references the section number that instructs states to create exchanges. The plaintiff's claim basically is that the IRS, like any federal agency, only has the authority to do the things that Congress gave it the authority to do. The IRS doesn't have like a 
a, a generic wellspring of power. It, it has the powers that Congress delegated to it. And if Congress only delegated to it the authority to offer tax credits and exchanges established by the state, then that's all the IRS can do. So, so just to be clear, uh, there are 34 states uh, that have exchanges that were established by the federal government, 17 states that created their own exchanges. And the language in the section that you're uh, worried about, 36B, in effect says exchanges established by the state. Those folks are eligible for tax subsidies. So truly, the the fight here is exchange established by the state, whether that means that all exchanges, including those uh, established by the federal government, or only those established by the states, right? That's that's right. the nut of right. it. That's, that, that's the nut of it, exactly. And, and what's interesting is this comes down to, as you said initially, just how you interpret statutes, right? This is not anything more than how you read the, the plain meaning of a law. And what's interesting to me, just reading all the briefs uh, recently, is that both sides say, hey, we are plainly reading the law. And the plaintiffs in this case say, look, this, the plain meaning of established by the states means established by the states. The other side says the clearly, clearly, we are also reading the law and we have to read it in a holistic, contextual way and not five words in isolation that might eviscerate the statute. So help me understand what the sort of methods are for thinking through how the court should interpret a law. Sure. Well, let me first give a little bit of background um, on that broader question, because one of the things that you definitely can can see in the briefs is that uh, both sides recognize that the dominant approach to statutory interpretation on the Supreme Court today is what we would call a textualist approach. Generally, all the justices think text is really important. That wasn't always so, right? So if you go back, when I teach my students statutory interpretation and we read cases from the 1970s, for example, we see a court that was much more interested in the broad thrust of a statute, its its broad purpose, and less likely to, to closely parse individual provisions. Um, but today, as you know, the, both sides are, are making these textual arguments because they know that's the dominant approach to statutory interpretation that the court takes. Um, you know, the plaintiff's argument is essentially that words mean what they mean, and uh, there's only so much you can stretch a given word. That is to say, um, if the word state in the statute is defined to mean one of the 50 states in the District of Columbia, as it is, well, then that's what that word means. That while there could be words that may have a range of meaning, um, established by the state is pretty clear and explicit. Well, well, that leads me to a question that I, I think a lot of listeners are probably confused about this, because I think there are two narratives on the plaintiff's side, and they seem to be in tension with one another. One narrative is, look, this language is just an oversight or a typo. It's just a mistake. The other is, no, this was clearly an effort by Congress to get the states to create their own exchanges. They would be penalized if they didn't do that. Which of those two is true? It seems to me that it's so important and that one of the things that the government argues is, good grief, if Congress was trying to incentivize states, why would they bury it in a tax provision? Well, I mean, in some sense, they're both true. And the reason why you you see the plaintiffs making arguments at multiple levels is because different justices are more likely to be swayed by different arguments. Uh, you know, Justice Breyer and Justice Scalia, just to kind of use the, the 
two polls view statutory interpretation very differently. Justice Breyer is more worried about ensuring that the statute ultimately appears rational and reasonable and, and conforms with what seems to be a, a, a reasonable purpose. Justice Scalia is much more concerned about the, the text itself uh, without regard for whether or not Congress did something reasonable. Justice Breyer is much more likely to look at legislative history. Justice Scalia refuses to look at legislative history, and as, as your listeners may know, sometimes will go so far as to join an opinion all but the portions of that opinion that refer to legislative history. So you'll sometimes see him say, you know, Justice Scalia joins all but footnote four or right. something like that. Um, and so, you know, as, as litigants, there's always the challenge of how do you both make the argument that you think is, is the best argument, but also what's the one that appeals to the justices you need to convince. You know, my own view is that relying on the text that Congress enacts is a better approach to statutory interpretation because it avoids a lot of the problems of legislators and others after the fact coming out and trying to have the law interpreted in line with, with what they prefer, but perhaps they didn't have the votes for. Um, in terms of what Congress intended to do, the, the one big complicating factor with this statute is, in some respects, Congress didn't intend to do any of this and yet intended to do all of it. And what I mean by that is no one in Congress thought that the bill that was passed was going to be the bill that was passed. Um, what was enacted was the Senate bill. And if we remember back to when, when the Affordable Care Act was enacted, um, Senate bill passes the Senate by with no votes to spare. They, the Democrats had 60 votes. And the House had passed its bill. And those two bills were very different in, in, in key respects, including when it comes to exchanges and tax credits. The Senate bill had a state-based exchange model. The House bill had a, a federal exchange model. The assumption was that we do what you know, Schoolhouse Rock tells us you do, that the House bill and the Senate bill have to be reconciled so that you have one bill that passes both. And we usually do that in a House-Senate conference. Uh, that's an opportunity to go through the bill, do final edits, you know, resolve potential conflicts or ambiguities. Well, in this case, none of that happened because uh, Scott Brown was elected to fill the seat that had been vacated when uh, Senator Kennedy uh, passed away. And that deprived supporters of the law of the 60th vote they needed in the Senate. And so there was no House Senate compromise bill. And so the Senate bill, which had been written on the one hand to address the concerns that some senators had about state involvement, but on the other hand was, in many respects, a negotiating draft, that was the bill that had to pass. And uh, the decision was made that that bill was better than no bill, even though it had lots of elements and features that many supporters of, of health care reform thought were problematic. And so you know, my view is, is that you can understand why the bill took the form it did. You can understand why certain provisions may have been in there. Um, and it was definitely intentional in that respect. Um, but it wasn't intentional in the sense that the bill that we got at the end of the day was not the bill that health care reform supporters thought they were going to be getting. Can, can we talk just for a moment? Because I, I think this seems to me the issue that people aren't 
fully uh, getting their arms around, and that is you know, simply the practical effects. And I, and I think it's complicated because an awful lot of people say life as we know it will end if the plaintiffs prevail. There are a lot of people that say, eh, won't that make that much difference? You know, states will figure it out. They'll come online eventually. Uh, you know, the insurance market will sort it, its way out. So I, I don't know the scope of, of what could happen if, if the plaintiffs prevail, but it does seem to me that, you know, what we're hearing over and over again is up to 8 million people could lose their insurance, people could die. Um, is is it the responsibility of the court to think about the scope of the harms that could come about if the plaintiffs prevail? So I think as, as a general matter, in this sort of case, that's not what the court should focus on. But we all know that judges are people too, and you know judges will be aware of the, the potential uh, implications of a decision, and, and it's certainly understandable if that influences them. In terms of the practical impacts, I think a lot of the reports that are out there, uh, you know, suggest broader impacts than I, I personally think are likely. But you know, I don't know if anyone has a perfect handle on it. Um, what's interesting in this case is that many people supporting the plaintiffs and many people supporting the government both have an incentive to characterize this case as having a massive impact. The government, obviously, because it wants to make courts concerned about you know, contributing to disruption, but uh, certainly plenty of folks that support the plaintiffs want to, you know, herald this case as, you know, the potential death blow against Obamacare and so on. And I've always been skeptical that that it produces the, the cascade that, that some folks hypothesize. And I think the last and perhaps most important variable, and I think this is, you know, a key part of certainly the way that I see the case, which is, you know, if Congress enacted a law that with the benefit of hindsight doesn't quite do what Congress wanted or hoped, perhaps because members of Congress never really thought about what would happen if 30-some states refused to cooperate, the proper solution to that sort of problem is for Congress to revisit it. And we know as when we had the, the VA scandal that if Congress feels the need to act, it's capable of, even this Congress is capable of it. The problem is they don't often feel the need to act, but if they do, they're capable. And, you know, if it looks like the amount of disruption could be significant, I would certainly hope and expect that Congress takes seriously its obligation to figure out how to, to fix the problem that its own legislation ultimately created. I've kept you a long time, Jonathan, but I have one last question that I've been dying to ask, and that is, you know, there are 30 amicus briefs filed on the other side of this case supporting the IRS view of King versus Burwell. I wondered if there was one of them that persuaded you, challenged you. Were there any that surprised you or made you think about this case in a different way? I mean, yes and no. I mean, part of the problem is, I mean, I, I, you know, I've been writing and thinking and debating about this issue for it seems like forever now, but for probably about three years, maybe a little more than that, because I think the first op-ed I wrote with Michael Cannon was in the fall of 2011. And I've certainly had discussions and debates with people who disagree with my assessment or my interpretation of the act that have certainly made me think quite a bit. So I wouldn't say that necessarily the briefs did it, but certainly, you know, in the course of, of you know, dealing with this issue for so long. I've certainly heard arguments and ideas that I've had to think about. And there are a couple arguments out there that raise federalism arguments. And and their arguments are all variants of the idea that to condition tax credits 
on state cooperation is to place a real burden on states, and a, and it's a burden that states might not have been aware of when they made their decision whether or not to create an exchange. And so, therefore, it would be improper or unreasonable to in, interpret the statute in a way that, that puts states in that position. And you know, one thing I've certainly thought a lot about is if the court were to accept those sorts of arguments, what does that mean for other areas of the law? And, um, you know, I've kind of said that if, if, if the plaintiffs have to lose, I, I hope they lose along those lines because I'm very sympathetic to some of the federalism arguments. I, I think that arguments about ensuring that states have notice of what's expected of them and arguments about the need to preserve a traditional federal state balance are serious arguments. And um, as a general matter are the sorts of arguments that I would like to think courts would take more seriously as a general matter. Jonathan Adler teaches law at Case Western Reserve University. He really was one of the principal architects of the present suit, and he blogs for the Volat Conspiracy. Jonathan, thank you so very much for joining us today on Amicus. My pleasure. Amicus is sponsored by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, a new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8 on HBO. The Jinx is filmmaker Andrew Jarecki's six-part examination of Robert Durst, the reclusive millionaire at the heart of three murders. It exposes long-buried information discovered during their seven-year investigation of a series of unsolved crimes. It was made with the cooperation of Durst, who has consistently maintained his innocence and remains a free man today. The Jinx comes from Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, the Oscar nominees behind Capturing the Freedmans. Durst came to know Jarecki after the release of his feature film, All Good Things, a fictional account of Durst's life starring Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst. The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. And now our next guest is Abby Gluck, who teaches at Yale Law School, where she specializes in federalism and health law. She's written extensively on the Burwell case. She's got a piece in Politico this week, and she filed an amicus brief in the case. Welcome to Amicus, Abby Gluck. Thanks for having me. So one of the things that's really hard to grasp in this litigation is that on the one hand, you have this very abstract discussion of how we read five words in a statute. Uh, On the other hand, you have enormous real world consequences that are hard, I think, for people to get their heads around. Can you just start from the place of what would happen if the plaintiffs would prevail at the Supreme Court? Yeah, the, the real world consequences cannot be understated. And Uh, They go to what the court is doing in the case because the court has to be able to to interpret complex statutes with real-world consequences and understand the impact of what it's doing. So in this case, uh, if the plaintiffs were to prevail, uh, there would pretty much be widespread chaos. the experts have predicted that $25 billion in subsidies that would be given to 8 million Americans across 34 states would no longer be given. Uh, that would lead those 8 million Americans most likely to lose their health insurance. And without those 8 million Americans in the market helping to sustain the insurance markets in those 34 states, those 34 state insurance markets could face near certain collapse. And that would really be a financial and personal disaster. And what about the argument that we keep hearing that, well, if it's a problem, Congress will fix the problem? 
So my favorite uh, analogy that's been made to this case is that it's like a big game of chicken. Of course, it would be great if somebody would fix it, but there are basically three different entities that could fix it. One, Congress. This Congress has shown itself to be the most gridlocked Congress in history. Even the Republicans have proved themselves unable or unwilling to agree on a backup plan or a replacement scheme. The second option is the states. Let the states flip and establish their own state insurance exchanges and solve the problem. But I think it's hard to overestimate the amount of political traction some of these red state politicians have received from the resistance to Obamacare. And I think it's somewhat unrealistic to assume that they're just all of a sudden in the wake of a Supreme Court ruling going to change and start to cooperate. So that leaves HHS, the Obama administration. Uh, people might be looking to them to step in and save the day, but they're in a very difficult position. Every time they act, they get sued. So like I said, it's a pretty big game of chicken. I think everyone is sort of waiting for the Supreme Court to rule, waiting for the chaos to ensue, and we're going to have to see who steps up. Someone's going to have to step up. We, we can't avoid it any longer. Uh, this case does turn on whether these handful of words mean what they say, and the words are, for listeners, exchanges established by the state. And the plaintiffs in this case claim that exchanges established by the state must mean exchanges established by the states themselves and not the federal government. So how do the folks on your side of this case deal with the fact that it looks like if you're looking for plain language, plain meaning interpretation of the of the words in this statute, they seem to say what the other side claims? They only say that if you read those few words in isolation with nothing else on the page. Uh, the way to understand the statute is to understand the statute. And the statute is built on a scheme of federalism. The states are given the right of first refusal to operate these health insurance markets out of deference to their traditional authority on, on insurance. And if the states don't operate them, the federal government steps in. There are many, many statutes like this in the US code. They're very common. Perhaps the best known one is the Clean Air Act. So with that background in mind, think about the statutory text. One section. 1311 says each state shall establish a health insurance exchange, capital E exchange, in the statute. 1321 explicitly lays out the consequences to each state if it doesn't establish the exchange, and it says the federal government shall establish such, capital E, exchange. Even with a literalistic plain reading, you can see that what the federal government is doing is operating the state exchange for the state. And that's always the way it's been discussed. There is no mention or definition of any concept of federal or HHS exchange in the statute. Every exchange is a state exchange. So so this is going to be an uphill battle for listeners uh, trying to make the rules of statutory construction just scorchingly interesting. But I wonder if you can help listeners understand what are the just basic canons, what are the tools that the justices are going to use when they look at the words of this statute and try to assess what it means. Yeah, well, as a legislation professor, I have to object to the idea that the rules of statutory construction are uninteresting. Um, <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll let that one go, Dahlia. Let's and go. I'll just say that um, the rules here are actually not that complicated. Um, the cardinal rule of textualist Justice Scalia leads the text-oriented uh, front when it comes to statutory interpretation. They've said over and over again that context matters. The reason is that you can't advocate a text-based theory of interpretation and tell anybody that it's smart or sophisticated if text is going to be 
interpreted in a vacuum. So the first thing is to understand is context. Context figures in in the way I described about how the federal and state exchanges work together. But it also means that you look around the rest of the statute and you ask yourself, is the interpretation that one side is reading does it work with the rest of the statute? And what the government is saying here is, no, it really doesn't work. There are a lot of other provisions in the statute that make no sense if the federal exchanges don't get subsidies. Like one, for example, is a provision that says federal and state exchanges have to report subsidies to the federal government. That makes no sense if the federal exchanges have no subsidies. There are a couple other sort of black letter rules of statutory interpretation that are important to mention. One is a set of doctrines that presumes that Congress does not write statutes to fail. And what's happening in the in challenger's interpretation is that they are arguing that Congress intentionally sowed the seeds of the federal exchange's own destruction into the statute. There's no statute like that in the U.S. Code. And the Supreme Court doesn't assume that Congress doesn't know how to legislate. Another one of these very important rules of interpretation are a series of doctrines that involve states' rights. This statute is a very state-heavy statute. It relies on the states for a lot of work, and it gives the states a lot of options to lead implementation. The court tends to be worried about these kinds of statutes because they're worried that Congress is going to roll over the states. And so the court has a series of rules that are designed to make sure that states have clear notice and that they're not penalized um, in sort of a bait-and-switch uh, by statutes that they don't understand and that aren't clear. And obviously, those doctrines are very important here because you've got pretty much half the states in the nation saying, hey, we had no idea that we would be penalized if we didn't operate our own state exchange. And the court should take that very seriously. Having just inadvertently insulted uh, those who <laughs> teach statutory construction, I'm going to not inadvertently insult anyone who teaches federalism. But this federalism argument, uh, which you just briefly touched on, is sort of suddenly getting traction that this case is not really about Obamacare. It's about states' rights. And suddenly just everywhere, including a piece you wrote last week in Politico, uh, everywhere we're hearing this notion that this is, in fact, a states' rights case. People are citing there's a brief uh, filed, an amicus brief by Virginia and several other states. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the extent to which this actually implicates states' rights. Yeah, uh, the case is really uh, fundamentally as much about states' rights as it is about textualism. And the two are related because the textualists themselves have always interpreted statutes in furtherance of federalist values. But the reason it's about states' rights is look who's going to be punished here. We're talking about 34 state insurance markets that are going to collapse, leaving the states with dramatic political chaos and consequences. And the argument here by the state of Virginia on behalf of more than 20 other states is that they were never given any notice that this would happen, so they couldn't make an informed choice. States can only make their voices heard in the political process, that is, while federal statutes that implicate them are being debated and enacted if they know what the consequences of those federal statutes are going to be. A lot of us uh, in academia have been writing for a while about how to uh, make sure we safeguard federalism in an age of federal power. And this case really brings those issues to the fore. And in a sense, I think it, it marries conservative values and liberal values in a way that kind of scrambles the way we think about this case, right? It's very interesting. It's true that in general, federalist values tend to support conservatives because they tend to uh, work to restrain the operation of big government. And at least today, big government is associated with the liberal cause. It's also an interesting irony to remember that these federalism doctrines were used 
by the anti-Obamacare folks in the 2012 constitutional case, NFIB versus Abelius, when they argued that the Medicaid expansion just simply asked too much of the states. So yes, here, the doctrines do support the government for a change, but that doesn't make them any less real. And if the court believes in these doctrines in the long run, then they should apply them here. So I want to ask you this question, Abby, because it it fascinates me, and that is that, you know, this challenge has been ridiculed by uh, defenders of the Affordable Care Act from the beginning as a sort of unserious piece of litigation cooked up in think tanks by folks who just hate Obamacare and want to kill it no matter how. Uh, Certainly federal appeals courts, judges who've looked at it have called this a specious appeal, tortured, nonsensical. Is this, in your view, a real case? Is this a real issue? Or is this something that is kind of a Hail Mary to try to end Obamacare when the 2012 effort failed? I think it certainly started out that way, um, as has been covered by a lot of reporters. Uh, This case was the direct result of a political strategy announced in an AEI conservative meeting in which the audience was urged to find some way to kill the statute, whether it's in Congress, in the courts, anyway, some loophole, anything that could be done. They took the statute to Congress more than 40 times already to try to get it repealed. Uh, They failed there, so they took the case to the courts. When the case was first filed, it's true, a lot of people thought this was just ridiculous because the whole case is based on this narrative that Congress somehow wanted to scare the states into operating their own health insurance exchanges, when in fact, all of the reporters, staffers, and folks involved with drafting the statute never thought that for one second from the beginning. It was always the states that wanted to operate their health insurance exchanges, and the statute was designed that way. So everybody thought this can't possibly have legs. But as we've seen before, healthcare politics are ridiculously unpredictable and ridiculously politicized, and there's sufficient animosity toward Obamacare, that the case got legs. It was also helped by very significant and effective blogging on the part of the supporters of this case that got the arguments into common currency and sort of miraculously have created this narrative that a bunch of people now think is true, that Congress actually meant to do what the challengers are saying. Does it matter? Will it matter to the court whether, you know, this whole question of legislative history and whether everybody involved in the drafting of the bill says, hey, whatever we were doing, we were not trying to coerce the states and we wouldn't have hidden it away in a tax provision if we were. Will it matter to the court that that history is what it is? Or will that somehow just be something that the court is able to put aside and get to the merits? I think there's two ways to answer that question. As a formal matter, the idea of looking at the historical materials that surrounded the time the statute was enacted is sometimes something the court does, but is pretty disfavored by the conservatives on the court. And so the government has not brought those materials into the case. The government is going in 100 percent and saying, we don't need that stuff. The text alone supports us. The text is clear that we have these federal subsidies and we don't need anything extraneous. And it's actually interesting that it's the challengers in this case that keep referring to all this extra textual stuff, trying to cite quotes from people from around the time the statute was being enacted to support their case. It's kind of an irony, given that they purport to be relying on this plain text interpretation. But that aside, all of this atmospheric stuff about what people knew and when is important because the challenger's argument has to be based on the idea that the statute is so crystal clear that it admits of no other interpretation. That's the only way the challengers can get past all of the legal doctrines that point against it. So the challengers have to make the case that this was clear to anybody reading the statute at the time 
that the statute says what they think it says. The fact that there's no evidence anybody thought that, the fact that CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, scored the statute the other way, the fact that even the Supreme Court in the 2012 case described the statute as having the federal subsidies available on the federal exchanges really undermines any argument that the statute is as crystal clear as the challengers say it is. And I think that's the way the idea of who understood what when is going to come into play. My very last question for you, Abby, is the one that I asked uh, Jonathan Adler uh, earlier in the show, which is you've written so extensively about this. You've thought about probably nothing else for months. Um, Is there something in the other side's briefs or arguments or the amicus briefs that came in on the other side that gave you pause that made you say, hey, you know, that's a really thoughtful and meritorious argument that I haven't thought of? Or have you, as this has gone through pretty much harden your stance that, you know what, there's just really only one way to view this case. So I have great respect for Jonathan Adler, and I do feel like I've been living with him in many ways for the last couple of years. Uh, Driving through New York City the other day, we passed actually a Jonathan Adler furniture store, and my eight-year-old son (laughs) said, oh my God, he has a store? Um, So that's the extent to which Jonathan uh, has been kind of a part of our lives. Um, In this particular case, I don't. There's nothing like that that I see here. I think that I'm a fan of textualism. I've written uh, in support of textualism. I think there's a lot to say that's in favor of textualism. But I think what's happening in this case is not real textualism in the sense of contextual interpretation. And while I'm often someone to leap uh, to the defense of textualist construction, uh, even in politically charged cases, in this particular case, I happen to think that the textualist principles support the government. Abby Gleck teaches at Yale Law School. She specializes in federalism and health law. I should add that if anyone can make statutory construction scorchingly interesting, it is she. She has <laughs> written extensively on the Burwell case, and she has filed an amicus brief. And Abby, thank you very, very much for taking time to join us on Amicus. Thanks, Dahlia. Now, most of you are listening to this podcast because, like me, you're intrigued by the law. You want to learn as much as possible about the courts and the Constitution. And that is the motivation behind the great courses. The great courses includes over 500 courses in all kinds of subjects, including the law. And it's available in audio and video formats. The great courses are taught by amazing and engaging professors and experts, and I tell you that this very week I taught my nine-year-old special relativity based on a great courses video. The Great Courses series on privacy, property, and free speech, law, and the Constitution in the 21st century is a great fit for amicus listeners. If you're listening to this show, it means you care about landmark Supreme Court cases, and Jeff Rosen, who teaches privacy, property, and free speech, will take you through important and compelling questions about modern technology, privacy, and the Constitution. The Great Courses has created a special limited-time offer only for amicus listeners, Order from eight of their best-selling courses, including Privacy, Property, and Free Speech, at up to 80% of the original price. Do not wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. That's thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. Now, before we leave you today, we wanted to give you an update on a case that we covered a few months back on this very podcast. The case involved a commercial fisherman whose name was John Yates, who was caught, so to speak, with a big haul of undersized grouper and charged by the federal government under a destruction of evidence statute that came out after the Enron scandal. Now, the question for the court, seriously, was whether fish constituted tangible objects under a provision of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which makes it a crime to destroy, alter, or cover up, quote, any record, document, or tangible object, unquote, with the intent to impede a federal investigation. 
This week, the court agreed with Fisherman Yates that the feds had just overreached and that destroying undersized grouper is just not the same as shredding documents. Most of the justices found that, quote, tangible objects needs to be understood to mean, quote, only objects that one can use to record or preserve information and not all objects in the physical world, end quote. Humor abounded. Quote, Fish one may fry, but may one falsify or make a false entry in the sea-dwelling creatures, wrote Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in a plurality opinion joined by Chief Justice John Roberts and Stephen Breyer and Sonia Sotomayor. Justice Sam Alito narrowly agreed with that view, but Elena Kagan dissented, joined amazingly by Antonin Scalia, Clarence Thomas, and Anthony Kennedy. They would have allowed the fish to be categorized as a, quote, tangible object because, as Justice Kagan explained in dissent, the ordinary meaning of, quote, tangible object is, quote, a discrete thing that possesses physical form. A fish is, of course, a discrete thing that possesses physical form, she wrote. See generally Dr. Seuss, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. And that is almost it for this episode of Slate's Amicus Podcast. Please let us know what you thought of the show, what you'd like to hear more of or less of in upcoming episodes. You can always reach us at amicus at slate.com. That's amicus at slate.com. And we love your letters and we are really loving your support. One final announcement. We here at Slate have big news to share. Our parent organization, the Slate Group, has just launched a brand new podcast network called Panoply. Panoply is going to feature the existing stable of Slate podcasts like Amicus and brand new podcasts that we're creating with other media outlets, authors, great thinkers, and fabulous personalities. Podcasts include, among others, The Ethicists from The New York Times Magazine, Inc. Uncensored from Inc. Magazine, The Vulture TV Podcast from New York Magazine, and Whistle Stop, a new podcast about political campaign history hosted by Slate's own John Dickerson. You can find all of these amazing new offerings on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all major podcast apps, and on iTunes. Just go to iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. Thank you to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. Our producer is the amazing Tony Field. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and we will be back with you soon for the next edition of Amicus.